Welcome to The Basement. What is good, everybody? Please excuse any slurred words. My son headbutted me up underneath my chin this morning and I bit my tongue. So uh, besides that excruciating pain I'm in, I'm still trying to get the words out of my mouth. I am very, very excited to bring you this episode of the Granddad's Basement Podcast. I met this gentleman, Fabian McIntosh, maybe four years ago in a Facebook group for people who listen to the Cavino and Rich show. It's a talk radio show on Sirius XM. They've been around for, oh boy, since maybe oh. Four oh three, maybe a uh, very long running show, and just a couple of buffoons. They talk about everything from the hard hitting issues to nothing and tissues. So uh, that's how 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 me and Fabian uh, met and bonded. And he he shared some stuff about himself just throughout the time I've known him on on that that private Facebook page. And I was just man, back when this was supposed to be the Team Human podcast before the the Granddad's Basement podcast was ever ever really coming up became a thing. Uh, I was like, I gotta talk to this dude. I gotta get his story out there. And he he was ready, willing, and able to share. And it was he gave me chills a few times in this one, uh, especially when he got to talking about his most recent experience with the with the coronavirus. So stay tuned for that. He talks about that uh, towards the tail end of this. So uh, everybody, be cool. Check on a vet, and as always, hug your loved ones. Uh, here's a fresh beat. Since Fabian took over the podcast, I uh, I had to do something. Chip. Fab Mac. Mr. D-Rain, what's poppin', brother? Nada, man. What's good with you? Thanks for calling. Yeah, no problem, bro. Just uh, just doing the damn thing, man. Just getting over this shit and weaning myself off the oxygen. You're still on oxygen? Yeah, they sent me home on oxygen still. Um, everything else was drastically better, so they said if you just gonna. Breathe on this O2 to just take your ass home and wing yourself off. And wow, I've uh, I've been I've been dropping it down by half a liter a day, so I've got two more liters. So I should be off oxygen three days from now. Huh? Damn. Well, fuck, man. I'm I'm glad you're you're good. That's that's so crazy. Yeah, man. It's been a hell of a ride, bro. This whole life, shit. But this this COVID thing was a was a nasty motherfucker. Yeah, well, no doubt. Well, man, we've been talking back and forth for a couple years before I ever even launched the podcast, and we were talking, uh, you know, a little bit about your story. So I was curious, uh, you know, everything's been a little wild, you know, in in the whole life. So I was just curious, uh, you know, if you want to share a little bit about kind of, you know, how you how you grew up and you know how you started. Oh shit, man! What do you want me to start, bro? The beginning or where it goes horribly wrong? <laughs> well, what led to things going horribly wrong? What was the, you know? What was the childhood like? Um, shit, man. I grew up in uh, South Denver, um, watching my parents fight 
My uh, both of my parents were big time alcoholics. Um, the divorce happened probably when I was about five. Okay. I would guess. Yeah, volatile age. Yeah, man. Uh, after that, it was me, mom, uh, my older brother. He's uh, four years older than me, and my older sister. She's three years older. Mm-hmm. Um. So uh, we struggled through it, man. My mom put herself through college and worked at Taco Bell part time. So we grew up on uh, welfare food, government cheese, and Taco Bell, bro. Man, that is, I was just talking, I think on the last episode of the podcast, it like exact same thing, you know, welfare, section eight, uh, that wick, all that good wick stuff, but also Taco Bell. Oh, yeah. Like everybody forgets these days about that fifty nine seventy nine ninety nine, but that shit got you by, um, you know, when the pockets were empty. My mom's discount, plus with my mom's discount, man, we was eating burritos for free, dog. <laughs> Get that bean and rice with them onions in there, we're good to go. Nothing, nothing was touching uh, uh, that Taco Bell, just blowing it out your ass, though. That's right, man. So five years old, um, parents get divorced, kind of, you know, I get the struggle, man. I grew up single mom, same same type situation. Pops wasn't there, and you know, with the alcoholic issues, too. So I definitely, definitely relate to that. And it's it's always a touchy subject, and it's sore in it. And it leaves us, like, becoming men real, just real difficult to grasp just the reality of, of the ways of the world when we're growing up with a single mom who also has her own issues that she's battling through. So I feel you, man. Yeah, man, that's, uh, that's pretty much how it went. Same was for me is, uh, my brother being older, um, he, he got angry quicker. Mm-hmm. So I, I, uh, I became his punching bag for mm-hmm. years and years. Um, my brother used to beat me uh, when my mom couldn't handle me. She would pay him off to beat me for getting in trouble at school or whatever it was I was doing around the house. So my brother was basically a hired hitman. Uh, he used to beat my ass constantly. We're talking the full the full gamut, stomach kicking, face kicking. I mean, uh, he gave it to me, bro. Mm. Um, you know, I... Uh, you know, trying to recoup from not having my dad and then having an abusive brother, um, you know, all around me with my grandparents, you know, grandpa was a mess. He was a severe alcoholic. They used to have to disable his vehicle to keep him from going to the liquor store. And that man would still walk six miles. Um, so, so even though my dad's toxicity and my mom's and his his chemistry was so horrible, even after dad left, um, I was still surrounded by the alcoholism, by mm. being dropped off, you know, weeks at a time at grandma's house and watching grandpa. Um, so, I mean, it's it's basically been, I've been surrounded by uh, alcohol and substance abuse since I was, since I was a little boy. Um, I've just been watching it. I've been watching my uncles, how they spiraled out of control. Uh, a couple of them dead from overdosing and things like that. So, um, I kind of, I kind of grew up in that kind of a hole, you know? Mm, damn. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do know. Yeah, most definitely. And it, it's never good. And so many people and just, just talking to you, I mean, really exclusively online for the last two and a half, three years, however long we've been, uh, we've been, uh, friends, 
you're right. you seem extremely well adjusted. Like you've been able to to internalize, you know, all those situations and have some type of overcoming on on the other side. You know, starting a family and just you can I can tell just you, what you output to your kids is just so much positivity. Now, as you're into your forties, like being able to realize all that whole that lifehood of just bullshit. You know, I, I, you can't well, you I can't spread I, that on. I tell you what, brother. Um, my thing was this. Um, I was a real trash bag myself. Um, I started, uh, you know, by the time um, I hit third grade, um, you know, after the divorce of what my not, my mom took us out to a suburb of Denver called Aurora. Mm-hmm. Now, um, at that point, my mom had graduated college. She started furthering herself in her career started making actual money to bring us up out of the hood. Mm-hmm. So around third or fourth grade, um, we left Denver and I went to Aurora where, um, you know, everything was so brand new. My mom went into a neighborhood and actually chose the model of home out of three options, you know, due to HOAs and things. But uh, we things had changed that drastically, going from welfare, uh, government cheese and all that, um, we got out of Denver probably three, four years later, and my mom was making good money, and things we thought were going to change for the better for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that puts me around, you know, fourth grade. Hell, I don't know. I was probably maybe close to 10, and that's where uh, I started really having a lot of issues. Um, I had a school psychologist that I would see once a week. I had a, um, I was also part of the Big Brothers program and I even had a big brother, which is a terrible thing because instead of my brother treating me like a little brother and trying to help me figure out my life, you know, I was still only 10 and still catching beatings as he was a 14 year old. So um, for, for me to actually have a big brother but be part of that program um, really attacked my psyche, you know, um, knowing that this 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 older boy is supposed to be my family and we're supposed to, you know, get close and, and treat each other like family. Well, that just wasn't the case. So um, I was caught up. I was rebelling at school. Um, I was getting into trouble. I was starting fights. I was an angry, an angry young man. Um, you know, and things started changing for me in middle school. So How so? For the, for the better or for the worse? Uh, well, for, for the better. Um, you know, my elementary school was directly behind my home. So between my elementary school and walking up the path, um, I was basically stuck. You know, I, I was in trouble all the time, so I was constantly grounded. Um, as far as popping off and getting into more trouble at school for fighting, uh, uh, my brother would basically be hired out to beat my ass for my mom. Hmm. So I was still catching, that's when I started catching the good beat downs, the, the stomach kickings and the, you know, the head kicks and the, and the full closed fist punching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was a, really a big time victim. Well, when I went to middle school, it was a little further away. And, um, you know, when you start hitting middle school, you know, you start liking girls, you start falling into different crowds, you start realizing that there's different crowds, you know. We had the guys that we called the stoners, 
mm-hmm. you know, who were listening to heavy metal music. Uh, we had the skater kids. Uh, we had the jocks, you know, um, and we had the pretty girl section. So that's basically the only sort of uh, little clicks that would happen. Um, there wasn't emo kids yet. Uh, you know, there wasn't, uh, you know, uh, soy boys and these soft little cupcakes like they got these days. Um, <laughs> that, that kind of stuff, you know, that kind of stuff wasn't really going on yet. So, um, I met some friends, um, and I found other people to hang out with and I could actually get away from my household and start trying to grow a little bit. Um, when I hit 13, um, was my eighth grade year at my middle school. And, um, that's when I, um, had my first experience and that's when I got into selling drugs. Um, now the crazy thing with that is, is this wasn't like real drugs like you have now. Um, I don't know how old you are, bro. And the, and the sort of things you may remember. I'm 35. Back in the day in the back. Okay. Um, so this might, this, you might know about some of this back in the day in the old, like penthouse and hustler magazines it was legal to sell these like ephedrine type of pills. Oh yeah. Um, yep. They had, they had the white cross, they had the pink hearts. Uh, you could actually buy them and they'd send them from like Holland or somewhere. Well, a friend of mine, we were over at a girl's house and, uh, we decided to go through her stuff and we found her dad's stash of pink hearts. Um, it was basically like an, an ephedrine type of thing. It was basically like a mild speed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, when you're dealing with, with eighth graders and seventh graders at the middle school, that really fucks kids up. Um, you know, they're still real young. There's no, there's no, uh, uh, tolerance to this stuff because kids are just starting to experiment. But, um, in eighth grade is when we got hold of, uh, a 300 bottle of pink hearts. So, through the end of my eighth grade year, I actually started selling these pills and making a little bit of money that no one really knew about. Um, it wasn't a ton of money, but there wasn't very many eighth graders with a little pocket full of cash, you know? Right, yeah. So that's kind of how I got into my delinquency real hardcore. Um, I started learning how to hustle. Um you know, at very first, when I got into middle school, I used to hang out with the stoner kids. Um, I used to be really heavy into, you know, Metallica and Slayer and Anthrax and these bands. I had mm-hmm. the, I had the jean jacket with the back patch sewn on the back. Yeah. Um, you know, I was one of them quote unquote stoner kids. And then um, I realized that I did like the music, but that wasn't for me. Um, you know, I bought. I bought a pack of cigarettes thinking I'd be cool with my stoner buddies and hang out on the corner by the by the uh, corner of the school, the little smoker square. Yep. And I tried to smoke a cigarette, man, and choked my ass off in front of everybody. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, man, this stoner shit ain't for me. I can't. I don't even know what I'm doing here with this cigarette in my hand. So um, I kind of switched it up, man. I kind of... You know, you're really trying to define yourself and try to figure out who you are when you're in middle school and things like that. So I kind of left that crew and I tried to uh, become the ladies' man. Me and my buddy, you know, we were starting to make a little bit of bread and 
you know, we were listening to, you know, old school Bobby Brown and like Surface and I'll be sure, you know, and we were going to, we were going to the school dance. We were wearing turtlenecks under our sweaters. You know what I'm saying? That was kind of thing. We started rocking (laughs) Cavaricis and shit. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of what happened to me through middle school. Uh, shit, right after that, I mean, obviously comes high school at where I was at high school is nine through 12. And, um, I was trying to find my niche. Uh, you know, it's kind of similar, you know, the high school is a bigger version of the middle school. So, um, I fell into, you know, my, my little crew, we got a little crowd going and, um, you know, next thing you know, um, you know, I finally learned to defend myself against my brother, you know, I'm 13, 14 years old. Um, I graduated at 17 on time. So you got to remember four years of high school, I started my freshman year, uh, at 14. So I was real young. Mm Um, I learned to kind of chase my brother off me. I kept a little bat under the bed. Um, had never had a good chance to clock him with it. You know, he never really learned. He still stuck with me a whole lot. But, um, you know, we ran into a, a handful of people and I started finding out about marijuana. Um, uh, one of the older kids, he was a junior at the time, uh, my buddy Monir, he was, uh, he was probably, you know, at the time I was out in the suburbs and there wasn't a whole lot of brown people or black people out there. I would say Monir was one of about 20 brothers that was at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, still tons of white kids, um, a lot of privileged kids, um, I actually went to school with this guy, Dylan Doug. He was one of the biggest car salesmen in Colorado. His girls went to my high school, okay. and they would drive a new car every quarter, you know. Oh, yeah. Dodge Shell 3000, you know, they got the new Explorer. So there was uh, some privileged kids around, for sure. Um, my high school wasn't too far from Cherry Creek, which is kind of a bougie area of town. So... um you know, I started realizing that there were bougie people, that there was, um, you know, money out there. And, I, you know, seeing these these girls and their friends and their goofball boyfriends, you know, constantly going out for lunch instead of eating at the cafeteria like us, um, I seen that there was money, and they always had pockets full of money. So I ended up hooking up with my buddy Monir, and he started me my first ounce of weed. Um, after that, bro, I ran with it. Um, I got heavy into selling weed. Um, I sold it cheaper. I I was consistent. Um, I made sure not to burn people because I figured if I gave them a straight sack that I would, they would keep coming. There was no point in me trying to get over on somebody for a quick 10 bucks just to lose their business. Yep. So I started selling weed to the privileged kids. Hell yeah. Entrepreneurial. I mean, just <laughs> in real entrepreneurial ship, that's, that's the thing, you know, do quality work, provide for people. And, you know, if you apply it to, to the game, then, then so be it. But yeah, I feel you. Yeah. Yeah, man. So, um, I went from that, um, grew up a little bit, um, kind of got out of, got out of the mix with Monier. He wasn't offering the best deals anymore. And I found, a. A guy named, I mean, I don't know, man, if some of these names should be bleeped out. I'm not using last names, so we should be good. But um, 
I ran into my buddy Mario, and, um, you know, I didn't realize who Mario was and what he was up to, but he was uh, a year older than me, but he was in a grade lower than me. Oh, jeez. So he, you know, he had been through some, some things and whatever and was slow progressing, but come to find out, the boy had pounds and pounds. So me and Mario linked up. Uh, we became like a tag team at that school. Uh, we were making money hand over fist with those kids. Uh, me and him were a couple of the only Chicanos that were there. And, uh, you know, we just, um, it turned into a whole nother life. Um, I didn't realize Mario had been collecting weapons. Um, I got into, um, I got my first gun at 15 and, uh, learned how to shoot it. Um, now my first gun was a 38 special man. Uh, and I kept that bitch under my mattress. Um, kept the doors locked and whatnot, but, uh, I developed uh, a real a real liking for weapons, whether it be a crossbow, um, you know, little handheld ones. I don't care if it was a bow and arrow. Um, I kind of got fascinated by weaponry. Um, I never became that much of a collector. You know, I've usually only had a couple, two or three at a time, but I'd always find opportunities to sell those things. So my my big thing, man, was that I was traumatized. I was a young man who had come up being slapped around a lot. I didn't have very much self-esteem. Um, always been kind of cute, but I was always uh, kind of skinny, you know, coming up through high school and whatnot. Yeah. Got tall and lanky. Um, and what I realized is the power of money. So from there, um, you know, things changed for me. I started getting the girls. Um you know, I made it a mission of mine to run through virgins, which is a horrible thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Yeah, uh, man, it's fucked up, but I got, still, I got more virgins under my belt than anybody I know. It's only eight, but it's more than a lot of That's dudes a lot. Had, you know what I'm That's saying? That's a lot of cherries, That's bro. a lot, That's bro. That's a lot of cherries. <laughs> I, I got one. So I was real unethical. <laughs> you know, I was real unethical, man. I was, um trying to run through girls. I was trying to take advantage of these little white girls that me and Mario would meet. And uh, then we started to balloon a little bit and uh, we started moving a little bit of business down here in Denver because I got some cousins my age that were into some similar things. So um, we brought our business from Aurora, started making connections down here in Denver. So I was back to, you know, I left Denver when I was probably nine maybe and next thing you know i'm right back down there with my cousins after school on the weekends uh pushing weight um we stopped with the baggies we stopped with the you know what i mean we stopped with the little digis and we just used nothing but triple beams because they would hold more weight at the time yeah. digital scales were kind of clunky still yeah so i got real heavy into into moving pounds um you know, stacking up money the best I could, um, trying to make me a little savings, but it really changed my whole, um, you know, my confidence in who I was and what I was capable of. Um, it really, the money that was coming in made me feel special. You know what I'm saying? I thought I was, I thought I was somebody finally, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, I kind of shook a lot of the, uh, you know, I used to be real sad all the time and write crybaby poetry and stuff, you know, back in grade school. And I got past all that and I thought I was kind of a tough guy, you know? Um, you know, I mean, from there, man, um, I got arrested at 16 with that very first gun. Um, I was underage and come to find out it was a stolen handgun. I mean, I was, I guess I should have thought that was obvious. Right. So I got my first felony charge at 16. Ooh, they threw an F at you. Um, well, when I got yanked, man, we had just started getting into what we called time bud at the time. Mm-hmm. Kind bud was the good stuff. Right. What they selling now at the dispensary. You know, that was the stink. Oh, yeah. And uh, we was moving it for $100 a quarter, no breaks. Damn. And we started getting heavy into the into the kind bud. So when I got pulled over, uh, not only did I have my strap, I also had three ounces of stink all broke down into eights. Mm. So back in those days, when you got caught up like that, anything over an ounce is a felony. Mm. And then it was bagged up for distribution. Mm. So I was, I was charged with two fel. I'm sorry, three felonies, mm. one for distribution, one for the weight, and one for the gun. God damn. Um, I, was con- I was convicted of one, um, which I caught to the gun charge, and they dropped the weed charges. Mm-hmm. So I was convicted of my first felony. By the time the work went through and the trial went through, not the trial, rather, but, um, you know, the pre-trial conferences and the deals I was making, I ended up copping to my very first felony at 17. Mm. Uh, I mean, let me know, man, if I'm going on too much. No, man, take, take over, take over. I'm intrigued. This is, uh, yeah, so so that's what happened to me, man. I ended up graduating. Well, here's the problem: is I was told a few different things growing up. I was told I would never graduate. Um, I was told I would end up in jail, and I was told that I would uh, end up with a criminal record and never be able to shake it. Well, come to find out, here I am at 17. I graduated. Uh, two weeks later, I turned 18. Um. At that point, I discovered that they were all correct, um, except for the high school thing. I made it through high school miraculously. Um, got my diploma. And uh, now, granted, I was moved from my high school down to what was called the alternative school for the high school. Yeah. So I went to a place called Smoky Hill. The alternative high school was called the Estate. I ended up getting moved to the estate because of the trouble I was getting in. So it was more or less like three quarter days instead of four days of high school. Um, it hardly gives you homework, but I was basically in school with all the fuck ups. Uh, the estate probably had about, you know, two to 300 students as opposed to my high school that had 2000. So I ended up at the alternative school and, uh, I did end up getting to walk with my class, and my alternative school gave me my home high school diploma because it was its home high school. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So uh, I graduated, and um, I moved right away because I had two friends die within a matter of weeks. Um, One of my buddies was wanted. Um, Five of our best friends were piled in an S10 blazer. Police got behind it, and my buddy Ike 
shoots out the back window, mm. aiming at the cops. The cop hits the ground, you know, he ducks and he swerves to avoid being hit by any, you know, bullets and stuff. The cop was fine, but my buddies freaked out. They thought that he had hit him. So my buddy Ike turned the gun on himself, Oof. still inside the S-10 blazer, and blew his face off in front of four of our other best friends that were there. Oof. He was the fifth one in the truck. So my, one of our best friends shot himself in the face in front of our other best friends. Two weeks later, we had another one of our good buddies who was dealing drugs with us. His name was Cooper. Cooper, um, he was part of me and Mario's crew, and Cooper died in a mysterious fashion. Uh, we heard that he was getting grimy and that he was getting greedy and that he was trying to make his own deals. So we don't ever really know exactly if what happened to Cooper was really a suicide because it seemed real fishy. Hmm. But at any rate, these two deaths happened in a matter of maybe three weeks, four weeks, I guess. And I lost it, and I was a fresh graduate, and I had a girlfriend at the time. And check this out. her dad, I don't know if you know about the Precious Moments figurines. They look like little kids saying, bless you, Jesus, and they got big old eyes and tears in the eyes. Oh, yeah, like yeah. figurines that grandmothers used to collect. Yeah. Well, my girl at the time, her dad was the uh, CEO of Precious Moments, and they lived out in Missouri. So I fled town. Um, I left. I took probably 15 pounds with me, and I went to Missouri for about a month and a half until I finally turned 18, where I had to come back to Denver because I had a stay of execution. So I had to come back to Denver after a month when I turned 18 and turn myself in and do 30 days in jail. Now, that was for the gun charge. Um, It was my first felony. They didn't want to throw the book at me. So with my first felony on that gun charge, by the time it was all said and done, they were correct, but they were also wrong. I made it, and I got through high school like the teachers told me I wouldn't. But they also told me, Fabian, you're going to end up in jail. And they were right. 18 years old, I come back to town. I have to turn myself in for 30 days. So, you know, all that before, you know, I just barely turned 18, man. It had already been, it seemed like a lot to me. Um, I did my 30 days here and went back to Missouri for about a year and a half. And I blew up with that 15 pounds. Missouri was nothing like Denver. Um, they, they didn't have access to weed unless it was like ditch weed. It was just disgusting, you know, seedy and brown and, you know, your old school Mexican brick weed. What I went there with was some pine bud. So I blew up down there. I didn't, uh, I probably worked for about four months until me and old girl broke up. And then I stopped working because I worked in her father's warehouse. Mm. So when things and I went, you know, when things went bad for her and I, um, I was like, well, I ain't going to work for this motherfucker. So I quit over at the warehouse I was at, and uh, I just sat on my 15 pounds and nickel and dimed it out. I made, hell, I probably made 80 times what it was worth. Um, Mm. I took care of my rent. I had me a little three-bedroom apartment at 18. Damn. It wasn't the best place in Missouri. But it was a little three-bedroom, you know what I'm saying? It was all mine, and I had the bread for it. So 
everything I paid was cash. Um, the guy was old school. He didn't ask no questions. He just liked him having his money on time. Right. So um, I stayed there for about another year and a half. And uh, I just couldn't deal with it no more, man. Once once I started running dry, I didn't want to try to find a connect in Missouri. I didn't want to try transporting and going back and forth to Colorado. So I just said, fuck it. I packed it up and came back to Colorado. Okay. Um, shit, you want me to keep going? Uh, well, I got a question before you keep going. Uh, as you kind of look back on the school system now, at the time, well, I got two questions. What was the feeling of your get this guilty charge at you know seventeen? You got a felony, you know, like what's that feeling? And then also, like the school system, you're, the people have been telling you you're you're gonna fail without looking. I, I clearly looking beyond what's going on in your life. How could the school system or, or you know any authority? figure treated you or looked at the situation differently to get you in a different spot? Um, man, you know, I think I was, uh, I think I was so focused on me being away from home and trying to get the hell out of there that, um, you know, I'm not sure I would have listened if I got better guidance. Um, things were so bad at home and that's where, that's where the guidance should have been. No I should have had that guidance coming from my home, you know, from my, my big brother, uh, my big sister even, you know, could have told me, you know, she could have developed a relationship with me, which we never did until I hit my 20s. Um, my mom, um, as I was leaving Colorado and going to Missouri, my mom actually moved for work to Florida. She left my brother, me, and my sister in this house. She would come back, first of all, once a week um, to pay bills and check on us and things. But as I was going through my legal trouble, she threw her hands in the air and was like, fuck it, you're on your own. So I paid for my own lawyer with my drug money. Um, you know, I kept my appointments. I did the best I could, but I got no support from home. Um, my, my idea was to come home to sleep when I could. Uh, my brother had knocked up his girlfriend, so he would... He had the upstairs floor, and he was kind of a tyrant of the house. Um, he would still pick on me here and there, but he knew I was strapped. He knew not to fuck with me too hard. He knew I was a different type of cat than him. Um, he used to hang out with the jocks. Um, we all played lacrosse. I started playing lacrosse when he did. And, uh, you know, I played lacrosse for about six years. I played through seventh and eighth and then I played almost through four years of high school until I was relocated to the to the estate where I was made ineligible due to my grades and stuff mm-hmm. but uh, my brother was a big time jock uh, he hung out with all the white boys um, I hung out with all the minorities um, he was he was busy listening to uh, you know what I'm saying yeah, unbelievable. You know what I'm saying? He oh, was to the white boy music. Yes, yeah, man. You know, that was, that was kind of his gig, and I was into, you know, shit, gangster rap. You know what I'm saying? I, I discovered that, you know, Tupac and shit after I went through Ice Cube, my Ice Cube days. And uh, I got more into hip hop, gangster music. Uh, I was into gangster movies. You know, I don't, you know, more of the new shit. I never really got into the old black and whites, but I started off with colors. You know, I started off with 
you know, with Scarface, you know, um, we would watch, sometimes get into a little bit of anime, you know, the Ninja Scroll movies, you know, Akira, things like that. Um, but those were more violence-based, so I was I was in a different state of mind. But um, at any rate, uh, we'll cut back to where we was. Um, I came back from Missouri. I was 19. Um, my brother had kind of changed a little bit because he had a baby. And I think that that really hit home with him, and he knew that he needed to learn to be a better person. Um, so when I came home from Missouri, he was real welcoming. Um, he acted like he loved me, you know. He'd actually show me some love a little bit. Um, and that really helped me uh, for a little bit when I came home. Um, I screwed off. I did a couple of warehouse jobs. Um, and then I ended up fucking off and catching me a DUI when I was 19. Mm. So, um, I went through that legal bout. Um, I was still kind of moving things a little bit when I was back here in town. Uh, more small time, uh, Mario and I kind of fell off. He ended up moving out of town. Um, you know, I found, I ended up re-hooking up with Monir. Uh, he was waxing a little bit, but I could still make some bread. So I was up to my old tricks. I kept selling weed. Um, that, that 300 bottle of pills of speed back in the day, that was the only time I used to fuck with, with that kind of stuff when I was that young. Um, so then I just kept it to the weed. Uh, you know, um, I decided, you know, I better cut the games. I need to go legit. You know, I just caught me DUI. I need to start straightening my life out and I need to become a productive member of society. So these warehouse jobs didn't work out that well. Uh, my brother decided to move on over, and quite honestly, he turned into a uh, teacher's assistant at a daycare, which really changed his life as well. It helped him become a more gentle person. He realized he was helping kids out, and he couldn't be the same dickhead that he was trying to raise me and beat me, you know? Yeah. So he, t he turned into a different man uh, entirely. He and I started developing a relationship. Uh, we ended up being real cool. Um, and I needed a job. And he was in real good with the director. It was actually a kinder care. I don't know if those are still popular or not. Man, but, uh, I don't even know. But yeah, that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Kinder Care is a big chain. Uh, there used to be a shitload of them in Colorado. I don't know if it ever was a, a nationwide chain, but I'm pretty it sure was a big ass chain. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, they, they were had around. multiple centers. Yeah, they had multiple centers and stuff. Um, well, I needed a job, and my brother was in real good with the director. Um, he fell off with his lady, and him and the director started messing around a little bit. <laughs> but he said, "Hey, same. Um, I'm able to get you a job." you know, a legit job. Would you like to look into it? And I was like, okay. He's like, yeah, we're kids. And I'm like, wow, this is weird. You know, I'm kind of a gangster, you know, I'm right. kinda, I don't know what to do with children. You know what I mean? But, um, I know I used to love the shit out of my little niece, my brother's first kid. Um, I was really intrigued by that, you know, and I needed to make a life change. So I was going through this transition and I ended up working at the kinder care, which was crazy because, you know, we had just, you know, between the two previous years before, you know, right before I went to Missouri, 
we tried to retaliate on some people that we thought were the cause of Cooper's death. So I went from, you know, 17, doing a couple drive-bys with some friends, trying to get some payback, moving to Missouri and coming home a year and a half, almost two years later, and I ended up working at a fucking daycare center. Right, that's wild. So this was my... This was mind-blowing to me, bro. Um, I started working at that daycare, and I was like, holy fuck, this is great. These little kids helping teach these little kids is amazing. Maybe I can help them a little bit where I didn't get help myself when I was young. You know what I mean? Hell yeah. But, again, I was in the transitional period. So what was an eye-opener for me is realizing that when I came into work, at 7.30, start getting breakfast ready for these kids over at the kinder care. I come in t- into my little locker room area, and I'm putting my backpack away, you know, with a pound or two wrapped up tight in my gun in my backpack. Mm-hmm. So here I was living this conflicted life. Um, I got out of the weed probably six months after working at the kinder care. You know, it was kind of an eye-opener when I saw it. Here I am trying to show these little kids, you know, right from wrong and how to wash your hands and this and that. And here I am with a fucking pound, half pound of weed or whatever in my backpack with a gun. So this kind of started fucking me up because I knew deep inside that I could be a good person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, it conflicted me and that's what also helped push me out of the weed entirely. Um, and also for fear of getting into more trouble, you know, I was 19. I just turned 20. I'm still at the kinder care and I end up, uh, you know, I'm a felon. I've already been to jail. I've had a DUI. I mean, I felt like a piece of shit and that I needed to change my life for the better. So, um, I halfway went legit, um, realized the kind of stupidity I was doing, bringing weight into the, into the daycare and, what is my dumbass doing here, you know, with a gun? You know what I mean? I had a, came up on a Glock 19 at that point. Goddamn, that was one of my favorites. Oh, that's still my favorite. But um, uh, I love me a good Glock, bro. No I was up with a Glock for, for a good 10 years. Um, but, uh, man, I, I, I still hear about it, man. They're still consistent. They're still good, clean weapons. So. Yes, sir. Firearms, rather, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's all good. Guns, but, um, firearms, clips, magazines, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I straightened up a little bit. Um, finally got out of the weed game. Uh, ended up moving on from the daycare center. I uh, ended up working in the mail room here and there, uh, you know, doing things like that. Um, fast forward a couple years. Um, I'm living back in Denver. Um I ran into some girl that I was babysat with when I was about five years old. Her mama used to babysit us when my mom would run off to school, you know, later on picking us up with a bag full of Taco Bell. But, mm-hmm. you know, and she was my first little girlfriend at like four and five years old. You know, I thought this is my little girlfriend. We got in trouble. You know, we had our clothes on, but I got in trouble laying on top of her, kissing her on her forehead. <laughs> yeah. um, but I ran into this girl and, uh, you know, we became a thing instantly. She was beautiful. Um, so I fell in love, in real love, finally. So, um, you know, real 
you know, that was probably when I was about 23. Um, I do need to back up, though, and just throw something in there. My brother tried to beat my ass one last time when I was 18. Wow. Uh, 19, actually. I just got back from Missouri. And I was bigger then, and I filled out a little bit. I didn't do shit in Missouri, but do what I could to pump iron so I wasn't so skinny, and I just ate and sold weed. So I used to go to the Y and shoot hoops, and I was trying to become stronger and healthier. Sure enough, my brother tried to get funny when I was 19. I picked him up, threw him on the top of his girl's car, fucked up her Camaro. He never touched me again, man. He never looked at me the same. He realized that this complex he had over little brother was over. And uh, after I slammed him and he realized he won't fuck with me no more, he really started helping me out and started, you know, that's when our relationship changed and, hey, man, you want to get a job? But anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there that I put a stop to that abuse um, by finally manning up, uh, getting a little tougher, getting a little bigger. So he and I's relationship totally changed. That's when he talked me into coming to tender care. And, uh, you know, that, that whole chapter was behind me now. Uh, he would never touch me again. That torment was over. The beatings I used to receive in my front lawn, you know, uh, the neighborhood kids are all watching and, and embarrassing me and shit. I knew that that rain and that that, that thing he had over me was finally gone. So that really was a huge relief for me because he used to fuck with me. You know, I'm still a person, still have a heart, and to know that someone had that power over me and for me to take that power back was an incredible thing. Um, but, you know, here we go. Um, back to 23. Um, this girl I found, she's real heavy into cocaine. Mm. So I'm like, I'm like, hmm, she and my cousin's dabble in this shit. Let me see what I could see. So I became uh, the the plug, kind of, you know, more or less the, the conduit. I wasn't really the plug. I wasn't the link. But I would make shit happen. I'd basically bring my cousins over, um, st- you know, started moving uh, moving some things in between her and her brothers, let, you know, kind of be in the middleman for them. And next thing you know, this is my girl. And next thing you know, man, I, I fall into drugs. Mm. Um, you know, she busts out the, you know, the CD case, starts chopping some shit up. I'm like, hold on, hold on, girl, what you doing? She's like, well, we we gonna party tonight, and I'm like, well, fuck, you know. Turn out was only a couple months fresh, and I'm like, uh, I'm like, I really, you know, I really haven't fucked with this, you know, what's it like? So she's like, well, we're gonna we're gonna do it now. So I did it, and I liked it. So I fell into cocaine, bro, from um, probably when I was 23 till I was probably 27. Damn, that's a long time. Uh, I was with her. I was with her for four years. I always maintained a job. Um, I never let it fuck me up to where, you know, I, I'm spending money on it. You know, I was like I said, I was kind of a middleman, so I'd get broke off real nice for making things happen. Right. Um, never really got into selling it, per se. But, you know, if I had a little extra and the homie got to make a couple bucks, yeah, man, shit, you know. I just got, you know, I just got a half ounce after making a couple moves and some phone calls and I got broken off a half ounce just for being the, being the middleman. So I'd have my own sack and every now and then, sure. 
I got you, bro. Come on over. I got you. I got a ball for you, so I hunt it. So I got into, you know, I was I was just dabbling. I wouldn't say that I got into selling cocaine per se, but if I needed extra bread, I had the coke. You know, for four years I had coke on me. Um, I was, you know, I started getting nasty with it, drinking too much. Um, I finally called in my first day of work. Um, almost ever. I've always been a good worker. You know, always been loyal to the job. And uh, I called in one day because I spent the whole night getting high. And that was kind of an eye-opener for me, you know. I realized what was going wrong. Me and this girl relationship was falling apart anyway. So uh, I got out of there, man. I had to get away from her. Um, I had to get away from this little cycle I was in. I had to stop copping that half ounce every three, four days for hooking them up. Because her brothers were real heavy. They were real heavy into the party and and, and uh, you know it was it was cooking and smoking shit though I didn't really realize that they were doing that I just thought we were doing bumps together and that they disappeared into their rooms because they were just paranoid and high right I didn't know that they were going inside the room and, and you know they started off with four leaves and shit and then actually you know these cats was cooking crack mm. so. You know, I realized that that was a problem when I called in. I'm like, I want to lose my fucking job because I'm over here doing cocaine. So I cut the games, man. Me and that girl broke up. Um, Before we broke up, though, I just think I'll throw this in there because it was interesting to me. She got saved. So she quit cocaine um, basically when I did, but she went to the church. And she got saved and uh, born again. So her and I have been together almost four years, and she goes and gets turned into a born-again Christian. And then things really changed with our relationship. She felt guilty because we were still having sex at a wedlock. Mm-hmm. So she's like, Fabian, I'm not comfortable with anymore. So I went from banging my beautiful girlfriend to being cut off the sex. Mm. She, she would still take care of a player every other way, you know what I mean? But then it became, you know, this still makes me feel guilty, you know? I'm over here giving you handies, and I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm fornicating. You know, she got real heavy, man. She got into three times a week church. She was at the Bible study. Um, she really got heavy. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Maybe let me give this a shot. So I'd always, you know, when I was a little boy... You know, before my mom relocated us, we went to the Sunday school. Uh, my family goes to church uh, every Sunday, uh, more or less my aunties and them. But, you know, my mom would take us every now and then, you know, maybe once a month on Sunday. But we was, you know, my family was considered, we were real religious people. Um, well, when my girl got, went and got saved, it was into Christianity, and I had always attended, like, a Catholic church, you know? We were real reserved. Um, we used to pray with our hands folded up on our knees, on the knee rest on the pew. And when she joined her church, she wanted me to come with her. So I went and checked it out. And these were some crazy Christian guys. And, these, you know, these people were, instead of praying like normal, they start jumping up and down. And mm. they start doing this, you know, talking about talking in tongues. And, yeah. Uh, it was a crazy environment to me, and I was like, wow, these guys really practice their religion in a different way, you know? Um, 
she frowned upon me because they'd be tripping and, and trying to speak in tongues and, you know, getting into what they would call, the, you know, the Holy Spirit coming into them or whatever. And she didn't like the fact that I would just bow my head and be silent with my prayer. Um, so she's like, you're not genuine. You don't want to be part of this. You know, she wasn't fucking me no more anyway. So I'm like, you're right, girl. This, you know, you're trying to force me real heavy into what you're doing, and I'm not used to this craziness, you know? I'm not used to people crying at the end of Mass and walking down and holding their hands in the air and waving them around. You know, I, I wasn't. that wasn't what we did in, in the Catholic Church. You know, we'd go down and they say their little blessing over our wafer and our little, you know, little fake-ass wine, you know, for the kids. And, and I, that's how we used to do it, you know, a little communion, you know what I'm saying? A uh, little first confession, my family Chicano, so there was that ass growing up. And so I'd come up Catholic, and this girl was trying to convert me into a hardcore fundamentalist Christian, basically. So that was real disturbing for me. That really pushed me away from her part of religion. Um, it actually turned me off of mine. Oh, damn. Um, yeah, it turned me off of the, the whole Catholicism. Um, you know, and I had met her at 23. Her and I broke up. I'm around 27 years old. Um, I'm being a good person. I'm not being a connect for anybody. I'm not... Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be the middleman. I'm not moving no weight. Um, I had already been in plenty of trouble. Um, I ended up uh, getting into some different shit and caught me a felony because I got caught up with my target pistol. I was out camping, and uh, we ended up coming back into town. I had my target pistol with me, you know, back in its case. But we decided to stop at Taco Bell, you know, 10.30 p.m., you know, just coming back into town. But we were brown folks, me and my boy. And we were in the Taco Bell parking lot eating Taco Bell, but they wanted to fuck with us anyway. Talking about we look suspicious. So these couple of cops, they hem us up. Um, they start digging around. Um, when I had lost, you know, when I lost that first case and had the cop to that gun, there was a little light that would come up when I would get in trouble. And when that would happen, that means I'm to be pulled out of the car at gunpoint. I'm a weapons offender. I'm on the gang file list. You know, I, and I'm known for carrying stolen firearms. So they get a little flag when I'm pulled over. My car was registered to me. They find out that I'm Fabian. They pull me out of the car at gunpoint and discover another gun. Fuck. Um, so I ended up getting caught up and convicted of my second felony. Ah, uh, you know, there was a question you asked me a bit back, and there was something about how I felt about copping my first felony. Yeah. Um, I knew it was permanent, man, and I felt like shit. Um, I knew that felonies, that you can't get them expunged, you know, when you're old enough and, and when you're cool. It's not like, you know, getting your record sealed from misdemeanors and stuff like that. Felonies stay on there, but the problem is, they see your charges. They don't just see your conviction. So every mm. time I'm getting pulled over now, it shows that I've been charged with four felonies, but I had only been convicted of two at that point. And therefore, this would hinder me down the road. We're trying to apply for jobs. Right. I go to get a background check. 
they see multiple charges of felonies not the outcomes. So they find me as a felon and I have a hard time getting work. Uh, so, you know, here I am going through some shit. Um, you know, I hit 27, me and my girlfriend were no longer living together. And I end up uh, moving in and splitting my dad's mortgage with him. Um, you know, basically I rented from my dad. It was his home. I had the basement, you know, had its own kitchenette. You know, I had my own entrance. Basically, it was like a, it was damn near a duplex, but it wasn't a duplex, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rented from him. Um, I was working oddball warehouse jobs and things like that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was 27 at the time. I had already jumped into granite. I started doing granite countertops when I uh, met the old girl when I was 23. So at 23, I found a trade, got into doing granite countertops that helped keep me. After I was done doing drugs with her, you know, I, and that's when I called in. I was supposed to go set a kitchen for my installer, and I was still a helper, you know. I called in, and I left him hanging, and he couldn't make no money, so I thought I was going to get fired. That was part of what I realized. I'm fucking up. I'm doing cocaine. I got to chill. So I found me a trade. Um, I was a granite installer. I made it out of being a helper, and I was a granite installer. So I was putting in stone. I was probably 27, 28 years old, and that's what I did. I was making decent money putting in stone countertops, fireplaces, uh, you know, mantles, floors, things like that. I learned how to do tile work. So, you know, that brings me up to just about 30 years old. And that's where I met my wife. Um, you know, I was living with my dad, um, you know, splitting mortgage with him, whatever, paying him rent, renting from him, whatever you want to call it. And I had met my wife. Um, you know, she was an amazing girl, but she was hella young, man. Here I am, you know, just about 30 years old, I'm 29 or whatever. She had just turned 18. So I'm like, oh shit, I gave her a warning, you know, don't call me. You know, I'm going to fuck up your life, bro. Don't call me back. <laughs> right. He let you know. Um, she, she loved me, man. She loved me. And, and I was like, well, I don't give a fuck. She's of legal age. I don't care how people look at me, you know. I'm 30 years old with an 18-year-old girlfriend. Um, I'm being looked at with, I don't give a fuck. I'm legit. You know, ain't nobody taking me to jail. She's of age. Um, but she was beautiful, man. My wife is half Japanese and half Mexican. She's uh, an incredible-looking girl. And uh, next thing you know, man, I knock her up and get her pregnant. Um, when I found out she was pregnant, um, I moved her into where I was at. You know, with my dad, um, he and I kind of started having a little bit of issues. So she's like, you know what? Let's go live in my grandparents' basement. I'm like, motherfucker, I'm 30 years old. Here I am, got this 18-year-old girl pregnant. I'm going to go move into somebody's basement? So that was kind of tough. You know, I had to make some adjustments. I felt felt weird. Um, Come to find out down the road... Her auntie was my dad's old high school sweetheart. <laughs> so, yeah, man, this is this is crazy to me. So, my dad 
um, had some issues, you know, he was bad to my mother. He was always bad with the women. And while they were high school sweethearts, before he met my mother, he was with this woman named Bernadette. Come to find out, um, he cheated on Bernadette, and Bernadette, he knocked up Bernadette. So Bernie ended up having a daughter, which down the road I discovered is my half-sister. Ooh. Right? And you're into your, yeah, your 30. Yeah, man. So this gets a little juicy. Uh, my my sister, my half sister, Julissa, is my brother's age. So my dad had knocked up this girl before he met my mom. Then he knocked up my mom from with my brother. So, and I didn't know this. Me and me and her have been together about a year. Um, I got her pregnant. Um, she was getting ready to burst, and that's when I found out. They were like, "Hold on, you're saving and all that," but. They found out my last name. Oh, 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 you're a Macintosh? And I'm like, well, yeah. And, you know, I'm talking with them at the family, you know, function. Wait a minute. Who, what do you mean you're a Macintosh? Who's your dad? My dad's name was Willie Macintosh. Bernie's, Bernie turns bright red. You know, Bernadette, this is Auntie Bernadette. And she's like, do you, do you know what's going on here? And I'm like, um, I really don't. Please explain. And that's when, you know, they decided my dad had knocked up Bernadette while she was in high school. And he left her. And he found my mom. And he knocked up my mom. So here I'm looked upon as, holy fuck, this is a piece of shit Macintosh. Right, yeah. He is Willie's son. Willie is a cheater. The Macintoshes ain't shit, right? The whole family, I didn't realize, had beef with my family. Mm. My wife's grandfather used to know my grandpa back in the 50s. Ooh. So this is a weird, crazy circle, right? I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? So we look around, and I'm like, okay, my dad knocked up Bernie, but, okay, so... I have a half-sister from this whole thing, but it's my girlfriend's cousin. Now, my girlfriend, though, she comes from a Japanese man and Bernadette's sister. So we do all the math and figure out who are not related. <laughs> that was the big thing. Once, yep. once I found out that Jaleesa was the cousin and she's my stepsister, I had to do the math. I'm like, hold on. Yep. So we get it figured out, man. We're not cousins. I'm like, oh, God, what a relief, <laughs> you know? Um, but I was looked at as that piece of shit Macintosh. I'm Willie's son. I ain't going to be shit. So they were trying to tell her to stop fucking with me. Right, and this is my wife now. They did the best they could to break us up. Uh, Jaleesa found out she did the best she could to run my name through the mud. Um, you know, with the whole family. So I had beef with my girls' family, mm. and luckily that didn't turn into a whole lot. They just kind of used to hate me, but they accepted me. Um, meanwhile, when I found out my girl was pregnant. I knew that what I needed to do was break the cycle of where I came from. And where I came from is not having a daddy. Um, I had him until I was five, you know, till the divorce. And then I didn't see him again until I was a teenager. So I didn't grow up with my dad. Um, 
And the thing was, is I knew that I love this girl and I need to be the man in this baby's life that I didn't have. So, um, you know, I started handing out, instead of asking her, hey, what do you need? You just need your prenatals. Here's money. Um, what do we need to pay our grandparents for the cable? Here's money. I just started giving this girl my check. And she was kind of blown away. Her people had been feeding her the whole time she was pregnant. She's a Macintosh. She's going to leave you. She don't love you. Their family don't know how to how to be loyal, you know? And uh, that kind of did a number on my wife. She was young. Uh, my wife has her own story. You know, she found her mother dead when she was 13 next to her. Oof. Um, yeah, you know, she got her own crazy story, but, you know, her family had spent all this eight, nine months trying to convince her that I was a piece of shit and I was going to leave. Well, once I started signing the back of my check and just giving it to her, she was blown away. She's like, you know what? You're not like who they're telling me you are. And I'm like, no, I'm not. You know, um, you have my baby inside there. And my goal is to break this cycle. I was fucked off and fucked up because my dad was gone. I know that if they had stayed together, my dad and I, you know, when I was a baby, that was my dude. Like, everywhere my dad went, I wanted to go with him. That was my dude. And when he was, you know, when he left and things were working out, I knew how fucked up it made me, you know, being being 11 years old and, you know, whatever, at, at the... You know, at the at the grade school, fifth grade, third grade, here I am with a psychologist, a social worker, because I ran away a couple times, you know what I mean? And I was like, you know what? I went through a whole bunch of bullshit. I went through drug addiction. I went through selling drugs. I went through getting beat. I went through being terrorized. And all this is because my daddy was gone, basically. You know what I'm saying? So... I knew I needed to break this cycle. I knew I needed to take care of what's mine. Um, and this was another chance. Uh, throughout the years, I had a couple of the girlfriends I knocked up that I wanted to have the baby, but they didn't want to. One of them was a, she was a, like a collegiate fast pitch softball star. And she's like, I ain't having no fucking baby. You don't fuck up my, my college career. So she went to the dock. You know what I'm saying? Um, I had another girl, and we were just too young, and she went to the doc. Um, you know, I cried, man. So I've been with girls with two abortions, and I cried both times when I was holding their hand. Um, I'd always wanted to kind of have my own baby, you know, to make things right, even though that was a real immature thought, you know. Um, but I ended up. Um, signing my checks over, I didn't. I wanted to break this fucking cycle of not having a dad, of of the beating and all this bullshit. So started signing over my check. Um, her and I started coming up. Um, I was still installing granite countertops. Uh, I got promoted. Started making better money. We got out of there. Uh, we ended up having my little boy. Uh, we were there at a grandparents for probably six months. Uh, my oldest son is named Fabian. He's now 11. He's going to be 12 uh, here in October. So here I am with little Fabian and this beautiful girl, and we start making our way out of there. You know, we get our own place. 
you know, first first we just kind of started off. Um, like I said, we was in grandma's basement, and uh, we started off. For, we did a six months at an apartment, and then um, I lost my job back in uh, like oh eight oh nine due to the recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, people weren't using granite countertops. Granite countertops was a luxury item. No doubt. And at the shop I was at, I only had, you know, six years in at that shop. And they're going to keep all their installers that have more seniority. So I kind of got weeded out of the stone industry. Um, I stopped putting in stone. I stopped doing tile. But, I, you know, I wasn't going to stop working because I was laid off. So I jumped into pest control, man. I was only making $11.50 an hour. Got my applicator's license, and uh, I did pest control for four years. Um, my wife, she was a CNA. She was only making about eleven fifty, And somehow or another, um, we were I was probably 32 at the time. This was about 10 years ago. I've been in my house here for about 10 years. Somehow or another, her and I qualified to buy a townhome, hmm. making eleven fifty each. But um, this townhome we bought was only ninety nine thousand. We got a great deal. Got in before the market got all fucked up. So we were kind of like a little success story, and I felt good. And uh, you know, we had our own little home uh, that was ours. Our mortgages to this day, this might make people sick. But my, I got a four-bedroom townhome, brother. I got a two-and-a-half bath, and I've been here 10 years. My mortgage is just about $670. Oh, yeah, they mad. Yeah, they mad. <laughs> no, they, they mad. Yeah, no, they, they mad. They right now. <laughs> um, yeah. I do got an HOA bill, so I kind of level it up to, okay, I pay $850. You know, <laughs> they they still mad. 80. They still mad. Yeah, man. I'm, I mean, I'm doing mad good over here. You know, we've been getting reappraised. Um, I got a letter probably three months ago. Uh, my place is worth two seventy right now. Denver blew the fuck up because of the weed. Um, rent has tripled. If you try to rent a one bedroom here in Denver, you're looking at probably thirteen to fourteen hundred mm. for a one bedroom apartment. Mm. So the market here is fucked up. Colorado was one of the first after California. You know, to start getting the weed going. Everybody came here, bro. Everybody fucking came to Colorado. Um, rent went up, the cost of living, every fucking thing. But we got grandfathered in because we bought this bitch before. So, you know, they still mad at me. You know what I'm saying? They still upset because I'm over here paying 850 with my HOA. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hell yeah. But uh, I, just con- I just continue to do better for myself. Um, after the stone industry thing, I did the pest control for a little bit. Um, the person running the office tried to get me caught up. She was doing something called cash tickets and she was my cousin's wife. So she started blackmailing me to do her cash tickets and we would split the money. Well, I had already been charged with four felonies and convicted of two. And now here this bitch wants to get me to embezzle, basically, from the company. Yeah, fuck Stealing money from the company. So um, I didn't do it. I knew I couldn't do it because here I am with a newborn baby, uh, you know, two, whatever, two years old, new, you know, young kid. 
and I'm trying to live a good life. I haven't been dealing drugs. I haven't been doing drugs. Um, here, this girl is trying to force me into another felony. So I wouldn't do it. I told her to fuck off, and she started cutting my hours down. Mm. Knowing I was a full-time, knowing I was a full-time dad, knowing I was a full-time worker, and she was my cousin's wife, one of my best cousins. And this bitch cuts me down to 15, 20 hours a week. Mm. So, you know, man, and this is, it's always weird, man. It's always like, you know what they say in that old gangster movie? Yo, they always pull you back in. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't do that. I couldn't go out like that. So I quit working there. Um, my brother-in-law runs a transportation company, and he had this little straggler account picking up blood samples from um, animal hospitals and taking them to a lab. He said, Fabian, let me see what we can do. Here's what you do. You go get you a tax ID number for $100. You get yourself a business registered. You call it whatever you want. And I got a job for you. So I opened up a business. Uh, my business is called SL Enterprises. Even to this day, that's for Fabian Lee. That's my name. Fabian Lee Macintosh. Mm-hmm. So I opened up Fabian Lee Enterprises and I became my own business guy. No, no workers, but it was my own business and my job was driving for six hours a day. Um, I ended up being a courier basically. Um, I got a beautiful wife at home. I'm still trying to stay clear and steady. Um, stop the drugs, stop acting a fool. Um, and I started running my own little business. Uh, I did that for six years as a driver. And then some shit came about. My brother-in-law was supposed to remind me about some new bidding on the route. Well, somebody undercut me by like, uh, basically 30 bucks a day. Mm. So when you add all that up, that's 150 a week. That's 600 a month loss. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't conducive for my bills. Uh, we were already dialed in on what we need to make with our one child. And uh, it just wasn't going to work out no more. I ended up having my second kid. I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. Ended up having my second kid. Uh, his name is Enoch. Yep. And, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't working out. I couldn't sustain having these two kids, my wife at home, and starting to lose money. So... Um, my cousin, uh, my wife was pregnant with another one. So we had a third on the way and my cousin said, Hey, Fabian, uh, you know, in 2012, while I was still running my courier service, basically when I started my courier service was 2012, um, on the weekend, my cousin was doing security downtown at, at the nightclub and I had already had previous experience. I worked at a place called PT Show Club at night doing security on the weekend for extra money. But I had experience doing security nonetheless. So my cousin hollers at me, hey man, um, you know, you've been doing security with me on the weekend at the club. How about I offer you a job doing full-time security at a hotel and we'll still do our club work on the weekends. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, the courier shit was going away and my cousin just happened to say, Hey man, you're a good worker on the weekend. You know, I run the show Well, I'm picking up a couple of accounts and I'm going to blow up. 
Sure enough, he did. Uh, he found me a job at a hotel um, right over here in this place called Arvada, kind of a small town on the outskirts of Denver. And uh, I've been over, you know, after the courier service. Um, I ended that probably about 40, about 41 years old. Um, I've got three kids at this point, and I'm doing full-time security. And this kind of brings us all the way back around to today. I've been doing full-time security at the hotel. It's my bread and butter. But I was still doing work at the nightclub both nights a week. So for probably four years, five years, I was working seven days a week. Um, luckily, Saturday and Sunday, or Friday and Saturday, was only four-hour shifts. It was only at the club, you know, a little bit of cash, and we're paying the whole shit, whole shit time. But um, I was just working hard for my family, seven days a week for four years straight. Mm. Um, just grinding and grinding, bro. Um, now, you know some other things about me. You know, I kicked religion back in the day. Um, and, and here's the thing. When I was going through this with this girl, and she was trying to force me heavy into a church and whatnot, um, you know, that's when I was a fuck up. I just got done, you know, we were still finishing off with the cocaine. She went and got saved. And I used to cry and I used to get on my knees, Catholic style, butt ass naked at the foot of my bed, mm-hmm. fold my hands and I would pray every night. I would be reading scripture, going over the Bible a little bit, uh, with my dad because he turned, he changed the person he was. He turned from that abusive alcoholic to a normal good person. And his thing was he liked to church. And uh, he and I would go over the Bible, we'd be reading it. And, uh, you know, I would be begging for help from this, uh, from Jesus. Hey, Jesus, please save me. You know, I, I really need you right now. You know, I can't do it alone. And after enough of that, bro, I said, you know what? This isn't going to happen. Um, this guy isn't coming to help me. You know, this Jesus man isn't going to come and fix it. So I need to stand up like a man and fix my own problems. So at that point, I uh, I quit drinking for about a year, uh, cold turkey. Um, I just cut out the drugs, cold turkey. So that's where, you know, that's when I kicked religion out the door and I decided to be my own man. So it really did, in essence... Getting rid of religion helped me more than staying into it. And that's just for me. Um, I would never try to change no one's thoughts on what they do or what they believe in. But that's just me, you know. It was no good for me. It was a crutch. Uh, it was something, it was wishful thinking. Um, and, I, and I gave that shit up, man. So um, I didn't realize what I was becoming, but come to find out down the road here that I'm an atheist. So I don't believe in a higher power. I believe in people, you know, human hands fix human problems. So I feel like we got to make our way out of our own messes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, so that was that was with the religion part. I know that was another aspect we didn't touch on about as far as who I am. But uh, at any rate, man... Um, my cousin gave me this job. I told him I needed a little more bread. He made me a supervisor. So currently I supervise, uh, a team downtown. I don't, I'm not too hands on with him because he's got another supervisor, 
but we supervise a team downtown on 14th and Larimer, which is called Lodo. It's uh, one of the biggest blocks in the whole area of Denver. And then we also supervise a, uh, a garage, which is basically empty. You know, there's only two workers that cover it. They're always on point. I don't got to do shit. Supervisor is just kind of a goofy title that I got with some more money. That's all. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's basically hands-off. You know, now, if there's a problem down at the garage, they can call me first. Um, if they got to call in on my day off, um, I stopped working the weekends a while back. Um, you know, I stopped doing Fridays probably about a year ago. So I've been working six days a week up until this virus shit. And then I dropped my last club day. But, you know, our weekend guys, you know, if there's a problem at the garage, I'm the one they call. I'm the one that's got to go fill in. So I still had, you know, extra duties, but I never really had to because we had good people. So nice. Um, that kind of brings us full circle to where we're at. Um, I was working the club until this virus hit. Um, well, I'm sorry. I'm long-winded, brother. We've been on this phone call. You let me know if I need to chill or if you got a time limit. No, man, um, no. I love to pick back up. Yeah, no, I love you taking over, man. I really, really appreciate you <laughs> coming on, opening up, and sharing. Like, we've been talking for a couple years. I'm like, I got to get this dude's story out. I got to get this dude's story out as soon as my podcast launched. <laughs> before before it was even titled this, back when it was Team Human, when we were in development, I was like, man, I got to tell this dude's story. We have so many parallels, and I relate so much. And there's, like a, there's a reason. Like, I don't fuck with too many people, and, like, I'm barely, barely online, but I make it a point, like, I reach out to you and like our little our little hip-hop group like most definitely I, I let that be known like i really only fuck with y'all but from growing up with just alcoholic supervision and you know no dad in the house and seeing the school shrink and like man i got a dui i was 21 when i, I almost 22 and i got mine and influenced by the church and seeing those people speak in tongues so you saw that a little bit later but like i got my high <laughs> yeah. yeah i got my high school girlfriend pregnant and while we didn't go to the dock like she she had to miscarriage just due to due to pills like it wasn't like on purpose but man it, sure. it was you know the living in living in the basement at 30 years old like i got off active duty military that was my saving grace joining the military at 19 was, you know still had to bump my head along the yeah. way but living in you know somebody sure. else's basement when you're a full grown ass adult like you should be handling your own responsibilities like to the <laughs> to the taco to the taco bell man to find him like pills was the first thing that that i was living in eau claire wisconsin it was riddling and Adderall and but pills nonetheless right, at, right. At, at a young age and finding cocaine at a certain point like that that'll, that'll change your life a little bit and hopefully you can dig your way out and I'm so happy like you were able to and I was able to and like I've driven the retaliation car as well so we got so many parallels some things happen <laughs> at different times like I I get that's why yeah. like now I'm seeing why like I feel this vibe towards you and why why we, we've clicked so much and I mean we rarely bump heads and it's always you know silly and we're just acknowledge that as men and and move on because that's part of being adults acknowledging our differences and realizing that's what makes us uh, you know, a fully working society as people and moving on from that but man, I was yeah. yeah. So I, I hope I wasn't pushing and bugging you too much the past few days. But when uh, uh, Nick put that the, <laughs> the news the news article up, like, oh shit, Fabian's in the hospital and yeah. this shit's real. And I got to see your wife speak, and she she was so heartfelt. It was you know a short little snippet, but you know just, you could tell like how big of an issue this was. And they got your you you posted up there on the ventilator, like, oh fuck, this shit is 
serious. So so break into that. You're talking, you know, if your wife used to work in the medical field and making eleven dollars an hour, and now what are your thoughts on that? Like the the hard work that you got to see from the inside, like they should probably be making more money. But what was your experience? You know, you you're you're not feeling well. Go to the doc, and bam, coronavirus. Okay, you yeah yeah let's let's jump to Corona man but uh, the COVID nineteen uh, the pandemic of twenty twenty brother um, so uh, I'll give you a quick rundown it's not a long story I know I've been going on and on um, so here's where we'll start man it was Saturday the twenty first uh, last month mm-hmm. uh, my oldest. He crawled up the stairs on his hands and knees, crying, telling me that his body hurt mm. and he had a tummy ache. And I'm like, wow, I mean, I understand the stomach ache, but how come he can't walk? And why does his body ache? And why is he on his hands and knees coming up the stairs? You know, he's crying to me, Dad, I'm fucked. You know, he don't talk like that. Dad, I don't feel good. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And, you know, this whole, this whole coronavirus thing had already started going on. You know, keeping people at the house, quarantined, uh, social distancing, all that. So Saturday morning, I called him up for breakfast. Um, I'm real strict around the house, so the kids got to get up early. We got chores to do. They got reading to do before they're allowed to play video games, uh, things like that. So I got them up nice and early like we do on Saturday. Um, I don't got time to be wasting days, and I'm trying to teach my boys some different type of work ethic that I didn't learn until later so at any rate Fabian come up the stairs crying and crawling on his hands and knees talking about his body hurt and he can't eat I'm like oh shit you know I had heard young kids are finally maybe getting this here and there you know not a lot but kids are getting this damn virus so I'm shit I'm like Fabian uh, whatever makes you comfortable if you want to lay down in your room if you want to watch TV or pill, whatever you want to do um, just relax uh, I put down my daughter, Liliana, and Enoch, get them set up with their cereal. Uh, you know, it's time to eat, y'all. Let's, let's get up in our chairs. Um, Liliana takes a half a bite and pushes her bowl away. Enoch looks at his bowl for about five minutes, and he don't even make a move on it. And I'm like, oh, chop, chop. Let's have some breakfast. What y'all doing over here? Um, they didn't feel good. Um, my little girl goes, Daddy, in my tummy, and I'm like, oh, no. And then Enoch gets up off his chair, he goes, Dad, I don't know if I'm going to puke or if I'm going to shit. I'm like, Enoch, you don't talk like that, bro. <laughs> he actually said, he actually said shit. I'm like, oh, man, I got to watch my mouth around these kids. No. Um, all three kids laid up all Saturday. They didn't eat one goddamn meal at all, at all. And I'm watching them closely, and I'm like, well, here we go. Sunday, I got to take them in. Uh, we got to go find out if my kids got this shit. Uh, we got to find out what's going on. I'm freaked the fuck out. Hell yeah. Sunday morning Sunday morning happens. All three kids are 100%. All three. Dad, I'm hungry. You know, they didn't eat the day before on Saturday. Man, I'm hungry. Dad, what's for breakfast? You know, they they, they got up before me. They was hungry as hell, all three of them. And I'm like, whoo, you know, no more tummy aches. They never had a fever or nothing. Uh, no more tummy aches. The kids are good. I get them set up. I feed them. My wife, she takes care of me. I'm a spoiled ass. Um, 
she never made breakfast though. She decided, you know what, let me do my man a favor and whip up some breakfast. She makes me this bomb-ass uh, sirloin steak breakfast. Steak and eggs, uh, green chili. We pick our own green chili every year. We go down to a farm. Uh, I teach my boys a little work ethic. Um, we usually hang out, you know, in the air conditioning a little bit. We listen to some Mexican music, mm. eat some sausage and crackers and fresh chili. But we go down to the farm every year. So so I'm over here, man, about to tear down this big-ass breakfast. Steak and eggs, green chili, you know what I'm saying? Tortillas and shit, bro. I'm ready to go. I take two bites, and I stand up, and I run for the toilet. And I'm like, man, I barely made it. Sat down, bro, and I've got diarrhea, right? Um, I come out of there. It was like a tequila night. I didn't think it was a, a big thing at first. It was just like a tequila night where you get up the next day with the squirts, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you know, my tummy's a little weird. I'm not going to be able to finish this amazing breakfast. So I wrap it up and put it in the fridge. Two hours later, I'm, I'm back in the bathroom. Two hours after that, I'm back in the bathroom. So Sunday, I had severe diarrhea and I had to call in to work. Now, mind you, I'm a good worker. I never fucking call in, ever. So I call in Sunday. Uh, Monday comes through. I'm still shitting all over myself. Luckily, I'm making it to the toilet. I'm not stackling the wall. You know what I'm saying? I got to be careful when I'm sneezing, cross my legs and shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Monday, I got severe diarrhea. Tuesday, I got severe diarrhea. Haven't eaten in three days. Wednesday comes around. It's my fourth day of not eating and me shitting all over myself, peeing out of my ass. Um, I'm like, okay, I need to hit the urgent care. I need to get some anti-diarrheals or some shit. I don't know what you call it, but I need my doctor to know I got diarrhea four days. I've never had that in my life. I'm like, I need to get something, you know, some pills or something. So I go into the urgent care um, because that's the only way to be seen with this pandemic going on. They don't want you setting appointments. They want phone appointments for stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm not here for this uh, virus. I've got severe diarrhea and I need some anti-diarrhea or diarrhea. I don't know what the fuck it is. But they're like, okay, Mr. McIntosh, have a seat. They get me in and they listen to you. You know, they always kind of do a checkup when you go to the doc. So they listen to my lungs and they decide you don't sound good. Let's take some x-rays of your lungs. So they took some x-rays and they discovered that I had severe pneumonia. Mm. And they said, sir, you need to get down to the hospital tonight. You need to go into the emergency room, you know, and I was at urgent care at the time at Kaiser, just a small office building. They had me hang out there. They caught the uh, severe pneumonia and they put me on oxygen right away. So I sat there for about an hour on oxygen. Um, They took the pictures of my lungs, discovered the severe pneumonia, and they said, sir, you need to get your ass over to the emergency room hospital right now. You've got severe pneumonia. I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. Um, I get down there. Um, I believe they waited a day. Uh, they test me for the virus. Um, and I come back positive for COVID-19. Um, at any point. So, so, so I'm at the hospital. They diagnosed me with COVID-19. The next day, um, I'm still on oxygen, but it hurts to breathe. My chest is getting tight. Mm. And I felt like I just took a giant bomb rip. 
of some of some you know what I'm saying, some Northern Lights. You know what I mean? Yeah. I felt like I just got did a dab and I couldn't hardly breathe. And I'm like, damn, my chest is tight. When I breathe in real deep, it's a sharp, sharp pain in my upper chest. Mm. Um, and this is like I said, I just been diagnosed, and they said, listen, uh, Fabian, you're not your oxygen is all fucked up. They had me pushed up to 10 and 12 liters of oxygen, which is a lot. Um, so I'm sucking down 12 liters of oxygen and I'm not doing any better. So they said, sir, you're getting worse. We need to put you on a ventilator. We need to do something called intubate you, which is putting down the feeding tubes and the breathing apparatus down into my stomach. And they said, we have to do this because you're not breathing enough and your body's not going to do it itself. Mm. So they put me on a ventilator. Uh, I was on it for four or five days. Um, I got so bad to where they do something. So, so something I didn't know, which come to find out is all the time is if you're laying on your stomach or you're sleeping on your stomach, you have less pressure on your lungs Mm-hmm. And your body absorbs and processes your oxygen a lot better. Mm-hmm. So while I had these tubes in my throat and in my face, um, they flipped me onto my stomach and they said, you're fucked up. We're going to knock you out. We're going to sedate you. We're going to, you know, basically like a mini coma. Whoa. So they put me out for, for about 24 to 36 hours. Damn. Uh, they kept me sedated. I didn't wake up for a day and a half. Um, I started waking up and I'm still kind of fucked up. My oxygen's still going through the roof. I'm still at 12 liters. And they said, sir, we don't have official paperwork, but, um, I need you to write on this whiteboard and you need to let me know if you want to concede. And, uh, it's basically a waiver. Do you, do you agree to try this medication that we got? And I'm on my fucking deathbed. I'm stressed out. Um, Come to find out, um, I got tested probably about four or five years ago. And come to find out, I have a mild form of PTSD because of the way I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, selling drugs, carrying weapons, getting beaten by my brother. Um, I had a mild form of PTSD. So I'm freaked out in the hospital. Um, I had a dream, you know, two of them while I was there and one before I went in when I had diarrhea at the house. I had these dreams that I was dying and my family was wrapping their arms around my neck telling me goodbye. So my mental is starting to play games with me. Mm-hmm. Um, here I am in the hospital alone. I've been diagnosed with this, with this virus that's killing people. And they can't come and visit me. My family can't come and tell me goodbye. So I'm all alone. I'm on a ventilator. And I'm literally dying. I'm literally dying. Um, While I was intubated, they only had me knocked out for 36 hours. And they woke me back up. So I was still chilling in the hospital bed on the ventilator for another three days. So probably around 2.33 each morning alarms would start going off in the intensive care unit because I'm in intensive care at this point. And I'm hearing room alarms going off. And there's literally almost damn near sound like armies of doctors and nurses running down the fucking hallway two, three, four in the morning, 
running to people's rooms to help save them. Mm. Um, these intensive care rooms, when these alarms are going off, they're loud. There's there's bright lights. Um, it's it's not like a police light per se, but there's lights that are kind of rotating in a circular fashion. You know what I mean? Um, emergency lights for sure. So here I am stuck, but I'm awake, and I can see this going on, and I can hear these footsteps of the nurses, dog. Sorry, man, I get a little choked up. No, you're giving um, me chills too, man. This is like what really, really made me want to get it. When I read you say something on one of those threads on Facebook, I was like, oh, god damn. Bro, hearing these fucking nurses and doctors, dog, running down the hallway trying to save people's lives. And here I am all alone. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was on my deathbed, bro. I was going to die in that bitch. And, you know, I'm watching these doctors. They got my blinds up because I'm in intensive care. They got to keep a close eye on me. And they got the blinds up. And the city's poor first responding ass people. Oh, hold on. I'm spitting on myself for shit. Um... Here I'm seeing these people, man, after they shift, putting their heads in their hands, and I see the nurses crying and holding each other, you know, whether, you know, and they're still in their protective, you know, personal protective equipment. And to see these people crying, I'm like, there's something wrong here. You know what I mean? Um, people are dying right next to me, dogs. Mm. Uh, who, uh, <clears throat> Let me regroup. Um, there's people dying right next to me. You know what I'm saying? And I'm seeing these people at the end of their days and how they're feeling and how they're functioning. Uh, one of the nurses was hella cool as I was getting better. And I, you know, I didn't know and, and I never put it together. But a lot of these nurses had set up, you know, next to their cars in the parking garage. They made little makeshift uh, you know, camping and hanging out areas. What they were doing, bro, is between shifts, they didn't want to go home to their own family because they don't want to take this shit home. Mm. You know what I mean? They're basically working in a COVID unit. It's not just ICU. It's basically converted to a COVID-19 virus unit. Basically, every last person in there was hooked up to machines. Uh, they were intubated, which I was. And these nurses and doctors, they got lawn chairs between their cars. They're posted up. They're spending the night in their vehicles, bro, because they don't want to go home and risk quarantining or taking this virus home to their families. So these nurses and doctors, man, um, I've never developed such an appreciation for first responders and people as quickly as I did in this scenario. It's powerful, um, yeah. It's it's unreal to me, man, um, what they're doing and the sacrifices they're making. They're not going home, you know, for their week at a time while they're on the clock. And then they get home and disinfect, and they take their two days off, and they quarantine themselves away from their family and kids because they don't know if they're going to catch it or if they're going to get it working in that unit, you know? Mm. Um, it blew my mind, bro, and it opened my eyes to the fact that um, okay, first of all, I just got done. They just woke me up. I still got these tubes and shit in me. And then I started seeing all this chaos and people dying around me. 
And I think to myself, you know, myself, since I gave up religion, I started doing some research into my own epistemology and things. I've accepted death probably about eight, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. I became one with it. I understand, and in my beliefs, in my worldview, there is no fucking afterlife. There's no way I'm going to be able to go back and see all these people up at the pearly gates and make everything better. So I've got to do the best I can while I can to make the best life for me and my family right now. Um, so with that being said, I was like, you know what, man, I'm crying in my bed to myself, freaked out. I'm all alone. I'm crying. And I'm thinking about what if I die? I'm going to be gone from my kid's life. And whether it's a divorce and you leave somebody or whether you're dead, the fact remains is you're still gone. And I thought to myself, what's going to happen to my oldest? You know, my six-year-old, she's going to learn to get over that daddy's gone and, and it's not going to be so hard. But Fabian is 11. And he's where I was at when things were going horribly wrong in my life as a child. So I'm freaked out. I'm crying thinking when I die, because I'm going to die in here, you know, how, what's going to happen to Fabian? Is he going to rebel? He's a big kid for his age. You know, he's healthy. Um, he's taking class, you know, some karate. Uh, he's not a violent kid. He wanted to quit karate. He made about eight or nine belts and they came to sparring and he don't want to spar because he don't want to hit nobody. Yeah, his sense of self-preservation <laughs> is amazing. He don't want nobody to hit him, so he quit karate. <laughs> but I'm thinking to myself, here's my little boy. He's strong. He he he's a little bit rough. Um, I'm a, I'm a hard father. I'm very disciplined on my kids, and I'm crying to myself, thinking, what's going to happen? Is Saving going to join a gang? Is he going to turn? You know, find some friends? You know, he's in fifth grade now. Um. When I'm in seventh grade, you know, eighth grade, I'm finding pills in people's freezer that we're going to sell. So all the worst starts hitting me. Saving, is he going to join a gang? Is he going to rebel against his mother? Um, what's going to happen? And I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on, you know, still crying to myself. So I'm like, I, I got to stop. I can't have this. I, I, I can't die in here because... Who knows what's going to happen to my boys. I know my wife's a gangster. She'll hold it down. She'll raise these kids. But what's going to happen to my babies without their dad? And I I went from being depressed and heartbroken and scared to being woken up. I'm sitting up finally. Still got these tubes in me. But I'm like, you know what? This isn't going to happen the way that they think it is or that I don't know who thinks what. But this can't happen. I'm not going to die in this fucking room. So I started thinking about other shit and changing my mindset. And uh, I'm back too. You know, I've been woken up for a day. Facebook and that. I'm not really on IG or nothing. Facebook is like my little outlet. I know. Um, I jump on. I start messaging with people. Uh, I got a handful of my own groups. You know, I started the hip-hop group. It's kind of small, but it's my group. I got I monitor it. I look at everybody's posts. Uh, I got another meme group, uh, 2,000 people in it. You know, I got six admin that helped me out. Um, I helped start and I run the beer group. There's a Carl's Beer Group. Um, I'm admin to that. You know, it's like my little shit because 
I work nights, you know, I don't do a whole lot. I surf, man, you know, I get bored and I surf. So that's my little outlet. And I start, you know, I wake up and they say, Fabian, you're on the news. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And I look up and there I am. Um, come to find out, my cousin decided, hey, Fabian's in trouble. I'm going to set up a GoFundMe for him and his family. They did this without my permission. I'm a, I'm a hard ass. I don't ask nobody for help. I don't ask nobody for shit. And I'm like, you know, uh, there's a GoFundMe for me, and I'm on the fucking, I'm on Fox 31 News, and I, I finally catch it. It's a little, you know, two-minute clip. I seen my wife on there. I seen her choked up. I seen pictures of me and my family, and I can't talk. I got these tubes in my throat. Mm. And I'm seeing all this shit, and I'm like, here I am, you know, this is this is reality and this is what's going on. And I start seeing, you know, I start fucking around and looking around and I start seeing all this support. Um, people are reaching out to me that, you know, were my friends years ago that I don't fuck with no more. Um, I look on to the, to the GoFundMe, I'm like, whoa. You know, they raised $3,000 in like two days? You know, my cousin put a limit. He just said, you know, let's try to, you know, let's get some help. Let's get $5,000 to help you and your family. So they said, you know, the goal is $5,000. Two days later, I see what's going on. I'm like, man, this is for real. I'm on the news. Somebody made a, a fundraiser for me, um, and it's going through the roof. And I'm like, you know, I got all this going on. What's going to happen to my babies? So I start getting motivated. I started changing my mindset. I'm like, look, I've been through more than a lot of people have at 43 years old. And I, I, this ain't it. This isn't where I draw the line. This isn't where it's going to stop for me. I'm going to get better and I'm getting the fuck up out of here. So I start sitting up. There's no more laying down. I start sitting up. I start fighting with these motherfuckers because they make me want to use a bedpan. And I'm like, look, I don't care, you know, I can't talk to them, but I'm writing vigorously on a whiteboard. Fuck no. I'm not sitting <laughs> in a three-inch bucket and having you wipe my ass. I can stand. Least you can let me do is use the bedside commode. You know, it looks like a walker with a bit, at least it's like a 10-inch bucket. I'm not going to get as much splash back. I can wipe my own ass. I literally wrote them on a the whiteboard. Fuck no, I ain't using the bedpan. Put me in the bedside. So they arguing with me. They trying to, you know, well, I don't know if we could do that. You're too weak. I wasn't going to have it. So they started putting me in the bedside commode for, for a day. Um, still got a little bit of the runs, but I'm getting IVs. I'm getting nutrients and shit at least. Uh, I wasn't going to go backwards, dog. I wasn't going to go out like that. This fucking virus isn't going to do this to me. And I, then I put up my first post, maybe my second. I don't remember about it. I'm a monster. No virus is going to take me out. I'm going to be coming home to you, Giovanna. So I put that up and people are like, fuck yeah, man, do that damn thing. And, you know, I'm reading comments and I'm like, I'm getting feisty. I'm like, fuck these guys. I ain't, you ain't wet my ass. Yep. Hell so yeah. I get motivated. I, I get motivated, man. I'm like, you know, and then they had me sign this little bullshit waiver. You want to try this experimental thing? 
And I'm like, fuck yes. I want to try anything I can to get me home to my family. So it's not even a real waiver. I basically wrote, I consent to your procedure on my little whiteboard. They took a picture of it from across the room so they didn't have to waste no PPE. And they gave me, they came in with a new IV. I don't even know what it was. I'm still looking through my paperwork. I don't know if it's that one that they're recommending, that one for malaria, mm-hmm. something or other keen. Yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it well without looking at it. Me either. But I'm like, yeah, give it to me, you know? And next thing you know, dog, I start improving dramatically. Dramatically. They pull the tubes out after the fourth or fifth day. Mm. Um, you know, they bruise my esophagus. I got a smaller throat in there. These tubes and all this shit moving around, trying to walk with tubes in me, trying to move to go to the bathroom. All this movement is fucking me up on the inside a little bit. So I got a bruised esophagus right now. You know, it's kind of hard to swallow hard stuff like toast. Um, you know, I'm good with soft things. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's real weird for me to tip my head all the way back to drink water. I got to kind of keep my head forward and kind of sip it down. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Um, but I changed my mindset, dog. I said, fuck all this. This ain't going to take me out. I started getting positive. I started getting feisty again. My old personality is coming back. And seeing all this positivity coming back, people are, people are sending my wife gifts. They bring them out boxes. You know, they got, you know, my auntie, she makes burritos. So she brings by a box of burritos and $200 for my wife in cash. And I start hearing about this shit and seeing all this love I'm getting and all this positivity. And I'm like, oh, my God, people fucking love me. You know, I didn't really know. Aside from my immediate family, I didn't think that people, yo, you see me online, man. I don't don't got time to fuck with people's feelings. Um, I don't got time for a lot of bullshit. I'm a straight shooter. I don't beat around the bush. Um... And, you know, seeing all this love I got, even though I'm an asshole online, people were just loving me and loving me and loving me. And I'm like, holy fuck, everybody cares. You know, people care, you know. Uh, And it just changed my mindset, bro. I got positive. I got feisty. I started sitting up. I started whipping this thing in the ass, bro. I took that COVID-19. I punched him in the eye and said, fuck you. We're going to fight this out, me and you. It's going to be me and you. And I got better quicker than anybody that they've seen, at least at St. Joe's Hospital. Hell yeah. Um, My whole total experience in there, dog, was eight nights. Uh, My ninth day, I was discharged. Uh, It took me a long time to get home. People don't want to come pick you up, you know, when you got Mm. COVID-19. I have vouchers from the hospital for Lyft and for uh, Uber. They ain't fucking with COVID nineteen people, right. so you know that they, they were they were totally justified. Hey, I don't know if I would have picked my ass up either. So it took me a good five hours to find my way out of the, out of the hospital. Man, uh, my wife, who's a gangster, she was supposed to be at the crib in quarantine. She said, "Fuck it, I'm coming to get you." So my baby shows up. She got four uh, scarves wrapped around her face. I'm like, is that you under there? She looked like uh, she looked like Kenny, that little boy who got his face all hidden up. She got oh, a yeah. hood on. She looked like Kenny from South Park. I think it's Kenny, little ass. Yeah. 
she's like, fuck these people. I'm going to pick you up. So my wife picks me up. I got an oxygen machine with me. And one last thing I did on my way out, I made the girl wheeling me out. They didn't want me walking. You know, I was real weak. I lost 20 pounds through this whole thing. Mm. I'm at the lightest I've been since my 20s. I weigh 199 pounds right now. Uh, five years ago, I was 267. Mm. So I lost, you know, I lost 20 pounds of this experience. Um, I'm on oxygen, but I'm getting sent home. Um, basically, they call me. Uh, my head charge nurse called me on a, see, on Saturday morning. And said, hey, man, 14 days after your first symptom, you're no longer contagious. You can go hang out with your family. Mm. Well, I had a phone appointment set up for yesterday, which was Tuesday, with my actual doctor, not a, not a nurse. So I figured she might know a little more. So I spent three additional days in my room just to keep my family safe. Uh, I had the phone call yesterday morning with my doc. Um she was blown away by my recovery. Um, apparently, um, I broke a record in St. Joseph's Hospital. I'm the first person that got intubated and later was extubated because of progress. Wow. Anybody else, at least in this one hospital, that has been hooked up to ventilators and the feeding tubes and the breathing apparatus, any of them are either still on it Six and eight weeks later, they're still basically in a in a induced coma, or they're sedated, or else they're up, but they're not doing much, and they're still on these ventilators. I'm the only one to have these machines removed because of progress. Everybody else is still on it, or they die. Wow! So if, what Straight would up. that's that's amazing, like absolutely amazing. What would you say to uh, the medical professionals who are in that care unit if you could talk to them? Well, on the way out the door, I'll tell you exactly what I told them. Um, we had to weave our way down two different floors um, to get to the main elevator. I made my nurse wheeling me out stop at every nurse station. And this is even people that weren't talking to me or dealing with me. They weren't even my nurses. Um, you kind of have a little section of where your room's at and those nurses deal with you. I made her stop at every single nurse station so I could thank whoever was there. Hey, listen, I wanted to tell you that you people saved my life. I'm forever grateful. And what you guys are doing here is a thankless job, but it's an amazing job. And you guys, you guys are the heroes of this whole thing. I made a stop at every nurse station. I told everybody, thank you uh, for what you're doing. And we appreciate you no matter if people are showing it or not. She was a little irritated. We hit about eight nurse stations on the way down. So. <laughs> yeah, but but to anybody out there that's a nurse, that's a doctor, that's an intake person, I don't care if you're the security guard at the hospital, these people are taking chances that other people won't take. Um, they're doing things that other people won't do. I, don't, I couldn't get family to come and pick me up with a ride home with me in the back seat or laying in the bed of the truck. I told one of my cousins, yo, give me 37 blankets. I'm going to lay down in the back of your truck and you don't even have to breathe the same air. His wife told him, no, I don't know what kind of bullshit that is. Mm. But, you know, these people 
are charging in headfirst every day. It doesn't matter that there's COVID-19 patients. They're coming to work, and they're taking their precautions, and they're living like animals in their vehicles in the parking garage because they love their job. And they're the most amazing set of human beings, uh, you know, right up there next to the police and, and, to, and to EMTs and any sort of first responder. Um, I used to be a drug dealer. I used to be anti-police. But when I gave up religion and decided I needed to be a better person, I stopped lying and stuff like that. I started showing an appreciation for people that I never had before. I started reading books again. Um, I started appreciating artwork again. Uh, I was an avid reader. I was always in trouble at home as a little boy, and I was always grounded. So um, at any rate, though, bro, what I would say to any first responder, mostly these nurses and stuff during this this, this pandemic, is that it's a thankless job, but I fucking love every last one of you for putting yourselves on the line to save people. Um, it's incredible to me, bro. I've never seen such selflessness. Um, I've never seen these people are basically jumping in front of shots. They at the firing range jumping in front of that paper every day. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Um, all I can do is send my utmost love and respect to anybody that's working with this shit, whether it be doctors, nurses, like I said, the security guy at the hospital. Um, they, they're doing the, they're doing the most amazing thing that you can do to help humanity. And I will forever be grateful. Um, I've got a handful of pictures that my little kids have drawn that, um, I just got to call back and get the unit number again. But I've got a handful of, of pictures that my kids are sending that they drew with their crayons and stuff. Thinking, you know, my wife put them up to it, you know, cause kids aren't always that thoughtful. It's just cool. Mm-hmm. But my wife, uh, she had said, hey, let's write some letters and let's draw some pictures thanking the people who took care of your dad. So I've got um, I've got six or seven little notes, pictures and crayons and markers and shit that my kids made that we're going to be sending over to the nursing unit. You know, I don't know if they're going to be paranoid or if they're going to want to wipe them down or <laughs> if they're not accepting mail from 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 just your average person, you know, because of the virus thing, and it, it, hell, the virus even survives on paper for a while, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't blame them if they throw them in the trash. But I've got a handful of letters and pictures that we're going to be sending into the ICU tomorrow morning. So I hope they get them. I hope they realize what they're doing is amazing, and it's it's unheard of. It's um, it's been mind blowing, bro. Man, well, I'm. Happy for you and your family that you're able to be on the road to a full recovery. You still got a little bit of oxygen, nagging cough, but but man, that's that's just powerful for you to be able to just sit up, you know, find the strength and and move on. And it just comes from your story, you know. And your story, you're you're one of the ones you're, you're changing the history. You know, you got a generational issue of alcoholics and deadbeats and abuse, and to be able to internalize that and, and just output the exact opposite. That's that's how we leave leave our legacy onto our kids. And like I said, my story, we got a lot of parallels, bro, a lot. And I'm trying to do the exact same thing for my legacy to be something completely different for the stories people tell about me. And, you know, not that you need my validation, but you are a success story because I feel I'm a success story. So, man, I really, Absolutely, really, bro. really appreciate you coming on and sharing. And I definitely want to do this again. 
Hey, man, absolutely. I know it was a long one, brother. I know it's been a couple hours. We've been chopping it up, but I've really enjoyed this, man. I've enjoyed... Um, my wife is kind of one of the only people that knows about a lot of shit that I've been through with the beatings and the, the mild case of PTSD from from carrying guns and, and getting involved in a couple shootouts and, you know, uh, drive-bys and stupid shit we've done. You know, I won't disclose that kind of stuff, but it, it happened and it's been, it's in the mix. It's all part of what made me who I am. So, um, I thank you for showing interest. Um, not a lot of people, you know, um, I, I agree with you, um, as selfish as it sounds. I do feel like I'm a success story. I do feel like I went from, being a, an asshole and a bum and, and an abused person to someone that can stand up for themselves and someone that can that can recognize that I can change and I can become a better person and um you know I just I want to thank you for having me on brother um you know one thing I want to get out real quick bro before I let you go and I think this is the most important thing for sure I'm no doctor and this is no medical advice but if you're concerned about this virus. Uh, and this is to all the people in the service industry who can't go to work right now, whether that be if you're a barber or a bartender. I've got a lot of friends in the industry from working in clubs since 2012. I know a lot of bartenders, DJs, servers, bottle girls. Um, cut the shit with the day drinking and thinking it's cute. Cut the shit with the vaping and the cigarettes and the... And the uh, smoking weed because quite frankly i'll be honest with you i never had a cough or a fever through my whole ordeal but my cough right now is because i quit smoking weed i've been a 30-year pothead um i've quit a couple times for probation you know stuff like that but i quit smoking uh about three weeks ago so i'm kind of dispelling you know some of the nasty stuff from my chest um this cough has never come from the covid um <laughs> One thing also I want to push, stay off the day drinking because you're compromising your immune system. Yes, sir. Yes, Cut sir. Bro, you're, yeah, you're fucking yourself. But yeah, before we before we um, cut out of here, I was just saying the exact same thing. To I got a group of veterans that we get together and, and just you know make sure no one puts an extra hole in themselves because vets got problems. But yeah, the, yeah I said man. the exact same thing. Somebody said, "Oh, today's Dude. National Beer Day. Uh, who's gonna have a beer?" I was like, uh, "It's the middle of the day, and how many vegetables did you have to get your immune system strong?" <laughs> I said like that exact same thing. Yo, and there you go. You just hit it. Clean eating, carbs. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you've got a great metabolism. Carbs and sugar equal inflammation. Yes, sir. So if, even if you have a small ailment like a, a smashed pinky toe, inflammation will get to you no matter what's your ailment. Yes, sir. So if you're worried about your upper respiratory, if you're worried about staying healthy, cut the shit with the drink and build up your immune system. Do what you can to eat clean, vitamin up, and stop smoking whatever it is you're smoking. I don't care if it's vape. Spice, weed, cigarettes. Let your body heal. Let your body be ready for this thing if it comes for you. Health. You know what I'm saying? Yep, health. And, and that's my only advice, bro. Four things. Vitamins, eat clean, stop the drinking, stop fucking around with that, and quit smoking. Hell Other yeah. than that, bro, that's my word of advice. Everybody stay your fuck safe. I don't know who's going to hear this. Um, but please stay safe out there, people. Wash your fucking hands. It ain't about you. It's about you taking this shit home to grandma. It's about you, younger cats who are healthy, taking this shit to people who aren't. 
don't worry about chewing if you're going to catch it. You worry about going to grandma's house. You worry about taking your mother shopping. You go get the fucking groceries for her. Don't take mama outside. Go drop them off with gloves. So that is where my phone died. And ain't no thing, we were pretty much wrapped up. So I did call him back. We got to we got to wrap up. Just told him thank him for for his time and opening up and sharing. But yeah, definitely definitely an interesting story, man. I, I was very, very happy to to bring y'all this one. So again, y'all be cool. Ciao.